Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hi, Katie. It is almost the end of 2022. Hollywood is on vacation already, as far as we understand. Um, And we're gathering for one last roundtable conversation for the year. Uh, And helping us are you guys, the listeners. Um, You answered our call for some mailbag questions with, um, you know, burning questions about this year's Oscar race and Oscar races past. It's a a really great mix of questions. So we'll be diving into those. And then in the back half of the episode, a rare Thursday interview, I talked to Michael Barker and Tom Bernard, who have been the co-presidents of Sony Pictures Classics, founded it uh, way back in 1992. And um, they have a new box set of some hits from the 30 years that they've been running the studio, which includes everything from SLC Punk to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon to Call Me By Your Name. Um, And we talked about kind of the history of the studio and also their current Oscar race, including Living with Bill Nye, who you heard David talk to earlier this week. Um, So you hear more about that later. Um, But first, let's open up the mailbag. Richard, you did the honors of kind of compiling all of these answers. Um, How smart are our listeners? Oh, they're great. And they have they have really interesting questions and provocative ones, you know, like where I, I got me thinking like about Oscar past and all that. So it was it was fun. We should do this more often. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I'll, you can always email us at littlegoldmenatvf.com because um, we love hearing your questions on a regular basis. But yes, mailbag episodes, a special occasion we can bring back. Um, Richard, do you want to do the honors of uh, setting up our first email? It's a little long, so maybe we won't yeah. read it in full. But thank, let's go to Rory. Uh, Yeah, so Rory writes, only twice since the 1930s have there been zero British acting nominees at the Oscars, at the 28th ceremony in 1956 and the 58th in 1986. Uh, And Rory says, I think we might be heading for the first Britless Oscar in 37 years. Um, And then he goes down to break, you know, there's obviously Olivia Colman for Empire of Light. Um, Bill Nye for Living, which I, I don't know, maybe we we, we think that's the best bet. Uh, But then there's a lot of Irish folks, which does not count. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. it's a different country, um, like uh, Jesse Buckley and Paul Meskell and other people. Um, but like otherwise, like any Redmayne, Emma Thompson, those British campaigns didn't really materialize. So Rory is just uh, wanting us to comment on that possibility. The listeners are so smart. Like, I, I wouldn't even have noticed this coming, but I, it's such a good point. But I, I'm sure we can dig more into it. But I, I, I think we don't have to worry about this. I feel pretty okay with Bill Nye. Um, yeah. The last couple weeks, especially, it just feels like so many people have been talking about living. I think maybe a month ago, I would have um, been a little more doubtful, but it does feel like he has a lot of momentum. Are you saying, Rebecca, that Sony Pictures Classics has, <laughs> knows a, has, a, has, has their way? <laughs> Not that we're plugging them or anything. It, you'll episode. hear more about it later in this episode. <laughs> um, but yes, I do think that Bill Nye is looking really good, and I am firmly on that train. I would be shocked if he doesn't make the final five. 
Um, yeah, I mean, you're, in your interview with him, David, I think he kind of expressed kind of the the shock at the the grand tour he's been led on in terms of promoting the movie. And I talked to um, Barker Bernard about this, too, about kind of convincing people like that it's really worth it. But that's the secret sauce that they keep pulling off. And, um, you know, Bill Nye, I don't know if his Britishness is what helps him here, but being a beloved character actor, many of whom tend to be British, I think is really his is uh, ace up his sleeve in this race. This is one case, too, where we'd been talking about the race for best actor being a little thin or disparate. Uh, And when I watched Living, he's just so good in it. And he's so affecting and lovable (laughs) in an improbable way that it's, I I, I just, the world does not make sense to me if he does not make the cut in this particular (laughs) race. Because he, first of all, scratches, I think, a particular itch. You have a couple actors in this Field going for their first nominations after being in this industry for a long time, like Brendan Fraser, Colin Farrell. Um, but he's he's especially a veteran, <laughs> let's say. He's been acting for a long time. He's never been Oscar nominated. He's never even really been in contention. And so uh, this is a real moment for him. And yeah, to Rebecca's point, the the momentum is very clear. So I don't see that reversing. Rory also was a little bit skeptical about... Um, women talking. I mean, Claire Foy and Jesse Buckley are, or I guess is Jesse Buckley is Irish. Claire Foy is British, correct? Yes, I believe so. Um, so, but, but Buckley has the edge there. Um, and then he, he writes, um, and if they can't get nominated for those, then there's not a lot of hope for Ben Wishaw, which I kind of think bizarrely for a movie called women talking, he might be the strongest contender just because supporting actors weird this year. Um, mm-hmm. so that could, that could be another Brit, but, um, it is on the, you know, on the sort of positive side, it is interesting that, that so many Irish actors are, um, in contention. I believe Rory counts it as being like six ish people. Wow. And none of them are Saoirse Ronan, which, uh, based on recent Oscar trends is unlikely. <laughs> uh, I don't know. There could be a late breaking thing for see how they run. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I do think, since you bring up supporting actor, I still think Eddie Redmayne has a chance to get in here. Um, I feel like he is promoting the heck out of this movie, The Good Nurse. And it is a it is a really strong performance. Obviously, the movie doesn't really have any uh, momentum anywhere else in the race. But I do feel like he just has had such success um, with getting nominated. And he's obviously won before that I feel like there's still a chance he gets into that weird group. The category is so front-loaded with dual contenders, um, the Fableman's guys and the Banshee's guys. And because it looks like the Banshee's guys are pretty strong, I think at this point, Brennan Gleeson and Barry Keegan are very likely to be nominated. There's a lot of room for surprise in someone like Eddie Redmayne or like Ben Wishaw as the real sole representative of their movie. A lot of screen time, a lot of emoting. Um, They have a path for sure. I wonder what year there were more Irish actors than English actors nominated. That That's this, a great question. This might be the, the biggest ratio just for Banshees alone, honestly. Uh, I'm going back through Wikipedia just briefly, kind of trying to feel like what the least British year was. Like if you take out the favorite from the favorite year, which is a pretty big ask, um, that's a pretty American year. And then 2016 is interesting because you have a lot of British people like Andrew Garfield and uh, Ruth Nake is Irish or um, who is the third? Oh, Naomi Harris, all playing Americans, uh, which is an interesting wrinkle in that. Um, But I think that Rory's stats about actual um, English nominees are correct. Mm, And I believe Olivia Colman... And only Gwyneth Paltrow are the Brits who won for playing Brits, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Good for uh, Gwyneth. <laughs> she was chuffed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Madonna joke, but 
not not a Gwyneth Paltrow joke. <laughs> I mean, if we're doing Gwyneth Paltrow accent jokes, like it really is the 90s again. I'm thrilled about it, honestly. <laughs> um, well, maybe Adam's question about um, will lead us to Colin Farrell and continue this topic if you want to go to that one, Richard. Yes. Uh, Adam writes, why do you think Brendan Fraser's narrative has been so strong this year as, to po- as opposed to, say, Colin Farrell's? Both actors have never been nominated, and Colin Farrell has been consistently putting out quality performances and interesting films over the past few years. Why is Brendan Fraser still considered the lock, even though Banshees has been so popular? I don't know if he is anymore. I don't know. This is, is the question, right? Yeah. He means a lock to win. I, yeah, I don't. I'm think assuming so that's what, anymore. I mean, well, that's yeah. been that had been the assumption for so long, though, among us included. I think. I think we all sort of made a mistake assuming that before anyone had seen the movie or like we have seen an image or we just everyone, not just us, sort of jumped on that from the moment the log line came out. I think, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think we've been watching how this film has been doing and how quiet it's been. And, and I, I mean, to me, he does not feel like a lock anymore. To the question of buzz. I mean, it is clear that there's been a lot more focus on Brendan Fraser than Colin Farrell. And I mean, that's just been a learning experience for me <laughs> because I, you know, I kind of grew up in the generation of his movies and I have a lot of peers who love his stuff. Um, and I'm, I was, you know, kind of a casual fan of his, but the depth of love for him and affection for him uh, is really, really intense. And I was not fully aware of that. And if you see like the, you know, standing ovation he got at Venice where the whale premiered and just how many views that got and how substantial that standing ovation was, or um, just basically anything he does, it gets a ton of attention. Everything he says seems to get picked up uh, in, you know, online aggregates and things like that. It just feels like there's so much attention on him that that kind of overshadowed who will actually win the Oscar, at least for Mm. me. And that's kind of why I was like, oh, he's going to win. Everyone's talking about him. And that's not always how this works. It's seeming like that may not be how this works this year. But I think in the case of Colin Farrell, he's in more of an ensemble piece. I don't know that he has had as turbulent of a Hollywood journey. And he was never as big of a star as Brendan Fraser. So I think you take all those things and that explains to some extent why Brandon Fraser has come into this race with so much more attention than Colin Farrell, even though Colin Farrell may prove to have more staying power. I'm wondering about Colin Farrell being as big a star as Brandon Fraser. I feel like they're very close, right? I mean, he, he didn't have a mummy franchise, but like for that like early 2000s, like he was the guy. Everywhere. He was a big star, but yeah, I think it's the franchise question. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. And stuff that wasn't as in during, you know. Right. I think that the key differences between the two, one is that Brendan Fraser's American. Mm-hmm. And two, this is much more of a comeback narrative. And and kind of the question um, that Adam asked answers itself in a way by saying, um, Colin Farrell has been consistently putting out quality performances and interesting films over the past few years. Guess who hasn't? Brendan Fraser. And so mm-hmm. it's a lot more exciting narratively that someone kind of comes out of the relative obscurity of TV work that no one's watching or whatever and, and then has all this Oscar attention. But I mean, I could see a world in which Colin Farrell becomes the sole winner for Banshees somehow. Um, Mm. I could also see Martin McDonough weirdly like winning Best Director or something crazy like that. Because I think the other difference of of how we were predicting this back, like after I saw the movie in Venice, let's say, The the Whale, I mean, and Banshees was at Venice, um, is that like I didn't quite think that Banshees would – I knew it would hold on, but I feel like it's only grown in, in its profile kind of 
exponentially compared to the whale, which has had, I think, trouble maintaining that buzz, especially now that people have seen it and don't really seem to be liking it. Even um, though it's making money. It's making money. Yeah, because I think people are curious about it. And so in that sense, you're like, okay, the marketing that we had kind of criticized on this podcast was effective because people were curious about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know, Banshees just seems like more of us down the middle sort of um, success story in some ways, even if it's not financially. Maybe Banshees has made 8.7 million. It's made more than Fablements at this point, which... I'm surprised to learn as I as I pull up Box Office Mojo right now. I don't know if it will like Fablemans will open wider or has or whatever, but uh, you know the whale is still like really at the very very beginning of it. Um, the comparison I saw that I thought was interesting was to Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler. Um, he's mm. obviously a very different kind of celebrity than Brendan Fraser. I think even on his awards campaign, he was not kind of pulling off the like lovable uh, position that Brendan Fraser has. But that's another Darren Aronofsky movie with a really commanding lead performance and one that really got the attention of the Internet and kind of the people who talk about the stuff all day. Twitter didn't exist yet or barely existed back then. Um, and then Sean Penn won the Oscar in the end uh, for the second time within five years or something like that. Um, and I don't think that Colin Farrell in Banshees is the same like transformative, big, big performance like Sean Penn in Milk. But I think that's an interesting parallel. Yeah, it is for sure. I think that the one difference being obviously that Fraser seems to have a lot of friends and fans within the industry and i don't know that mickey Rourke did it's kind of like why people think that sylvester stallone lost you know to Mm -hmm. mark rylance ultimately Mm -hmm. was because a lot of people don't like sylvester stallone's ditto michael keaton yeah um yeah brendan fraser didn't burn bridges the way that some of those guys did. yeah um but they are interesting i mean i i don't know i think fraser's campaign has been like i watched the actors on actors with him and um adam sandler that variety put out I mean, I didn't watch all of it, but like Fraser's was kind of had a weird energy to him. And I don't know, like, I wonder what what he's like in a room, you know, whereas Colin Farrell could, I don't know, ask me directions. And I'd be like, yes, I will marry you. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Jamie Lee Curtis did say exactly that. Yeah, right. (laughs) And that video has been seen seemingly very popular. So, yeah, um, I don't know. I think maybe kind of like Redmayne versus uh, uh, Keaton, maybe Farrell wins in the sort of charm off that is the next few months of campaigning. Yeah, that's a really good point. This is the this is the time of year when like the hands that you shake can really tip the scales. The one thing holding me back with Colin Farrell winning this category right now is it's not the kind of performance that usually wins this category. It's, you know, I would love to see it win, but you have someone like Austin Butler lurking. Um. Yeah. He would be I think if you made me predict right now who would win Best Actor, which is foolish because the nominations aren't out, I would put my money on Austin Butler. I mean, look no further than Rami Malek not that long ago. Um, And I think Elvis is a much more popular movie than Bohemian Rhapsody um, with a really similar narrative for a Best Actor win. I think all three of these guys come with specific challenges to winning. Like, I think Austin Butler, unlike Rami Malek, you know, Rami Malek had just won an Emmy and he was a little bit more established um, as a prestige actor. Um, sure, whereas sure. Austin Butler, it's a bigger leap. But I total, I kind of lean the same direction right now, Katie. It's just, yeah, each of them are in it. It's an interesting race right now. I don't know how closely people are paying attention to this, but like Austin Butler's PR team got him exactly the right SNL hosting slot. You know, last yep. one before the yes! holiday. Big Cecily Although, Strong final episode. Eddie Murphy also did that a couple years ago and I was like, great, he's winning the Oscar. Oh, and fair it enough. D- doesn't okay. always work, yeah. but yes, but I, I agree like, that is the strategy. <laughs> But it brought Austin Butler back into public view, it's, you know, instead of just people watching Elvis on HBO Max or whatever. Um, it kind of confirmed him as like a charismatic talent. You know, I haven't watched many of the sketches, but he seemed to do fine, which is yeah, about all you well. can ask of a host these days. Um, and 
So I, 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 yeah, he's an interesting case because it, like you said, David, it's very rare that someone like Austin Butler wins having had no real Oscar resume prior to that or Emmy. Did you guys resume. watch his monologue? It was wonderful. Yeah, he like cried. He, yeah. yeah, he talked about his because he's talked about his mom. His mom died at the same age that Elvis's mom died. Like he was twenty three when his mom died, and Elvis was twenty three when his mom died. Which, as if you've seen Elvis, you know, was a major moment for him. Um, but I just thought it was lovely and really winning, um, and exactly the way that you might want if you were uh, wanting to get nominated for an Oscar. Yeah, he's really. I mean, he's showing up on all those awards roundtables. He's doing. I feel like he's kept this film alive, and I. I I wouldn't be all three of these guys. I feel like if any of them won tomorrow, I would be able, like, that makes perfect sense. Like each of them has a narrative that makes sense to me to win this. Great. I'm glad we've made a, a definitive decision. <laughs> <laughs> it's not between the two you asked about. It's between three. <laughs> uh, you want to take the next one, Richard? So Katie, you mentioned box office, uh, which somewhat per- actually pertains to the next two questions. But first of all, Heather writes from the UK. Sorry, UK, you're not going to have any nominees this year. Um, (laughs) No, you are. Um, With the UK going through an economic crisis right now, and many of this year's big awards contenders already available on VOD, I'm having to make some choices about what I go out to see this year and what I watch at home. So my question is, which of this year's Oscar hopefuls do you think really benefit from being seen on the big screen? Ooh, that's a good question. Empire of Light. (laughs) 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 I have advised people to go, and I've had, I think, about a... Maybe six to four turnout in terms of like six people being like, oh, my God, that was so good. Why do, why does everyone hate it? And then four people being like, you've steered me wrong. Lots. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it and I hate yeah. you. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that, you know, there's obvious answers like Avatar, which I think all of us would agree you should see on the big screen. But I was thinking about like Tar, which I saw in the yes. I haven't revisited it at home. But like that movie is so absorbing and really needs you to like go with it. Um, and I think watching it at home would take away a lot of that. I mean, your attention span mileage may vary, but that would be a big one for me. RRR. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've been watching that one at home and like regret it, honestly. Yeah, it's it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> if you get the right crowd, it is it is a lot of fun, um, as I'm sure a lot of people listening know. Um, but yeah, it's... I, I like this question because it is a good occasion to go beyond the obvious examples. And mm-hmm. Avatar is a, I would say, a near requirement. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you can, at least. Um, but there are, I think, a lot of interesting theatrical preferred movies here. Also, I'm assuming because this uh, Heather is from the UK that English is her first language. And in case it is, go see the international stuff in the theaters because it's all the harder to like focus on mm. subtitles when you have your phone and the dogs barking and everything like that, you know, and also those movies need the money. Um, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, so if any of those contenders are playing, you know, films that were at Cannes or Venice or whatever, like maybe seek those out. Um, because like I, I watch the Fablemans at home. I think you can do that. Uh, you know, you can probably watch Banshees at home. Um, the whale certainly, but yeah, I mean, you know, the big spectacles, obviously, and then maybe some stuff that needs the, the financial love. I don't know if this is still in theaters, especially in the UK, but um, I think Triangle of Sadness is really yes. a fun one to watch That's in the theater yeah. because you feel the discomfort in the audience. And that is something that is really fun to experience. Yeah. Yeah. I watched that at New York Film Festival and had a really the audience was right there with it. It was yeah. I mean, there's a lot of good audience experience movies out there this year. Like Top Gun is a huge one, obviously. I mean, it may very well still be in theaters. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Forever. But, but yeah, like the range between Top Gun and Triangle of Sadness. But they're both movies you want to see with a crowd. That's <laughs> that's a that's a sign of a good year, I think. 
One movie that I think benefits from a quieter theatrical experience is Women Talking. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, I saw it basically alone in a screening room before it premiered at Telluride. And, you know, I think that's why I found it as moving as I did. It was just kind of a very sacred experience. Um, and I think it is not a movie that benefits from easy home distractions because it's so script driven, because it is so thoughtfully done and so carefully done, uh, especially in the structure and, and the way it develops. Um, so yeah, that would be one that I would say, try to see in a theater if you can. It's out, I believe, as of this episode going live, right? Mm. Or on Friday. Yeah. In yeah. select cities. Also, the moments when that movie goes big, you know, it's so confined within that barn for so much of it. And then when it gets expansive and Hildred Gwendoldotter's score ramps up, like you really want to feel that transition, I think. And I think you feel that more on a big screen. And view it like a play that you'd want to see live, you know, mm-hmm. like it's talking. That's a good way of, and, yeah, that's a good way of thinking. Yeah. On to the next. Yeah, on to the next. All right. Well, speaking of box office, Lauren writes, um, well, it was a longer email. I apologize, Lauren. I've, I've pared it down to the essential question, I think. Um, with all these box office quote bombs, uh, she says the new Disney movie being the latest a strange world, I think she's talking about, right? Um, yeah. Do we just need to redefine what success at the box office looks like? Um, this is maybe more of a question for the town <laughs> yeah. and uh, Matt Baloney, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I think something's got to give, right? I actually have a piece coming out, I think at some point in the magazine, about a little thing about like the failure of Art House box office this fall for some titles at least, and like what that means and why we should still keep making the, or why studios should keep you know making and releasing those movies. Um, but I tried to be optimistic, and I don't know how optimistic I am because you can redefine success to a certain point, but like numbers are numbers. Yeah, and, like, the numbers expectation for a Disney movie like Strange World is, like, going to be different from something like Tar, obviously. And I think Disney has set the standard for itself where it's, like, if it doesn't make a billion dollars worldwide, it is nothing. Um, And I don't know how healthy that is for them or for movies in general. And, like, we're watching it with Avatar right now because it opened, like— slow-ish, which the first Avatar did as well. Um, It didn't open the same as Spider-Man, whatever the last one was, um, and it shouldn't have. And I think even that, like, recalibrating on that scale might be happening and might be better for everybody. Mm. I think it's also incumbent on the studios a little bit to tell us what to look for. Mm -hmm. Like, Banshees is going to make probably about a fifth of what billboards did, three billboards did in U.S. theaters, North American theaters. Uh, and so then for me, the question is, like, how many people are watching this movie at home? Like, what is the yeah. what is the breakdown versus, you know, pre-pandemic? Because that's really what we're talking about. Um, and how much audience is actually being lost versus how much has shifted? Because I know people who are just watching all these movies when they come out on VOD. I know some people who are not watching them at all. Um, but there's definitely a sizable audience that's just not going to the theaters to see them. Uh, and that, to me is something we just don't really have any grasp on that, or at least I don't. Like, And they don't remember, tell us. Like, We just don't uh, know yeah. how much they've made off Banshees on VOD, and they never will tell us, and it's probably turning a profit, but we have no way of knowing. Exactly. So that, to me, is the big question. Um, because, yeah, I think we do have to redefine for these movies 
what a success is because otherwise it's looking very bleak and none of these movies will be made anymore, which I don't think will happen, but there does yeah. have to be a, a recalibration. And this could be a year where actually Oscar nominations really do drive that kind of viewership. Like, oh, okay, so that was nominated for Best Picture. Oh, and it's on demand, so let me watch it, you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, I, You know, normally, in I mean, in the old days, you'd see an act, a little box office bump sometimes from from the Oscar. They would re-release the Best Picture winner or whatever. And, yeah. and um, I don't like know Driving Miss Daisy I, would be number one at the box office the weekend right. after the Oscars or something. I don't know if that's going to happen, but, um, you know, if the VOD is more viable, because, you know, again, like you said, David, we don't really know, but I'm hoping it is. Um, because, yeah, it's it's when you actually look at all of it arrayed, you're like, wow, this this economy has cratered like this kind of specialty uh-huh. box office fall movie thing um, is not not a good year for that. It does. It almost makes me hope that a specialty film that did not make a lot of the box office wins a ton of Oscars because at least that studio can be like, these are worth making because look at all these right. Oscars we won. And and that for a long time was part of the drive behind these studios still supporting these movies. And Well, that was CODA, right? I mean, yeah. it was never going to make, like, that was a, a lot of factors for that. But I think that's what the perfect example. Yeah, but I, but I think that may not be the case. I mean, the winner this year could very well be a, a huge box office movie so well do you count everything everywhere all at once i mean it was a, a huge, huge success for its movie, budget yeah. but like you know it made less than morbius yeah, um but true. i think <laughs> but i think it's box office success for its scale has been part of that yeah, story for how much it was made for it it's definitely a box office success so yeah but yeah i think it's just the language around what is success it has to change and and a lot of that as david is saying is is up to the studios to make that change all right, here we have one. I think it's going to be pretty easy to answer. Amy writes, who do I need to bribe in Hollywood to get Angela Bassett a Best Supporting Actress nomination? Or Best Supporting Actress Oscar, I guess is really what she's asking. Um, Nomination-wise, I don't think anybody. Like You can bribe us. If you yeah, yeah, us. yeah oh, sure, of course. Happy to. Yeah. We accept Omega Watches, any you know trips, places, whatever. <laughs> uh, but she's probably going to get nominated, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty impressed by that. Like, I feel like because she'd be the first Marvel actor ever to be nominated. And it's like after we're kind of forever kind of open and everyone's like, yeah, it's not as good as the original. Like, here we go. And now that it's just kind of like settled in place after all of that, kind of without anyone noticing, I thought. Yeah. You want to talk about the narrative around an actor who <laughs> has not been nominated in a long time, who it just kind of coalesced, I think, quite easily for her in a way of. Yeah, why not? Like, mm-hmm. this is a messy category. She's the obvious play from this movie. She's great in this movie. And it's Angela Bassett. And she hasn't been nominated since, you know, over 20 years. So, yeah, yeah I think that that um, refreshingly was not as tough a sell uh, as people feared. It will always kind of bum me out that Michael B. Jordan just couldn't get there for the first one. Um, not that, like, yeah. their, their performances are really different. I think it played different roles in the movies. But um, he really deserved it. I do think um, I, I think it's possible for her to win too. I mean, we have a long way to go to get there, but this this supporting actress race is so weird, and she's such a giant name, and and would be being honored sort of for her career, you know, in general, not just this film. That I I see a path for her to win as well, especially if she just like charms the heck out of everyone in the next you know couple months on the trail. Well, we keep mm-hmm. talking about Jamie Lee Curtis, which I. The thing that I get hung up on in that is, like, we all think Ki Hui Kwan is kind of locked in. Like, Michelle Yeoh, I mean, we can talk about Best Actress if we want. I think she's still very much in in it to win there. Like, does Everything Everywhere get three Oscars? Or does Supporting Actress kind of start shaking out? I think it's a—it's <laughs> like the Wild West. I have no idea. 
<laughs> the one good thing about Jamie Lee Curtis uh, for her campaign is she's kind of Hollywood royalty. And, mm-hmm. Literally. She's, um, she's a Nepo baby. She is. She, she's, <laughs> yes, we mentioned Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> we're, we're, we're inching toward the Nepo baby discourse of the week. <laughs> um, it's a totally different narrative from Ki Kwan or Michelle Yeoh. While she will also be a first-time nominee, it's it's under very different circumstances. Um, it's a very different performance from those two. And I think she's going to win the Golden Globe. So she has a head start. Yeah. Uh, okay. We have a couple questions about a similar topic, so I'll read them together. Um, first off, Indigo writes, All right, guys, I have a real belief that Rihanna, after not releasing anything for six years, will take Best Song. It would mean the Academy have their easy acknowledgement of Wakanda forever, and of course I don't think anyone would complain about Rihanna being an Oscar winner. Just a thought, but I also believe it more than anything else in the season so far. So we'll get to that. And then we also have uh, Alicia wrote, wrote in um, and said a couple weeks ago when the topic of best original song came up, uh, Disenchanted, um, Disney's Enchanted sequel didn't come up in the discussion. Is it eligible? So let's do the first one, Rihanna winning an Oscar for the Wakanda Forever song, which is quite a powerful moment in the film. We should start by saying that this podcast will be out after the shortlists are out, but we yes. were recording before. So if there is a shocking snub... We are not aware of. <laughs> yep. Um, I feel, also feel like we need to answer the second one first, which is that Disenchanted is not eligible, which I think yeah. is uh, silly uh, and a missed opportunity, but it's true. Because it was streaming. Yes, it was only streaming. And unlike Turning Red, which is eligible for having been released in whatever way, even though it was mostly seen on Disney+, Plus, um, it's not. you got to think about Dis- Disney releasing Strange World in theaters and it tanking and then putting Disenchanted on Disney+, Plus, and it's like, what if you'd flipped that? It's wild. Um, like, why wasn't Disenchanted in theaters? It doesn't make any sense to me. I, I Well, uh, there's a new CEO in town who might have some thoughts about that. <laughs> might be listening right now. Yep. Um, okay, but we should talk about Rihanna. Um, honestly, I just think she has to get past Lady Gaga first, and that's not that easy. Yep. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I, think that, I think that's right. I mean, there are a couple other big heavy hitters kind of lurking in the shadows, too. You know, you have Taylor Swift and... Um, I think Diane Warren has a song. Billie Eilish and Phineas wrote the song from Turning Red, which is yeah. great. Right. And, um, you know, when the shortlist comes out, that's going to be the first one I'm going to be looking for because um, I feel like it's flown under the radar undeservingly. But I think that Indigo is correct in pointing out that, like, you know, we just talked about Bassett, but like for a win, song would be a good place to do it. You have a one of the world's biggest celebrities accepting that award. Mm-hmm. Um, it's for a very powerful moment in the film, the sort of defining emotional closing note of the film and um it really and it really plays in the movie not just over credits and i i don't know i think that would be strong and it would be really fun to have her there i i I mean gay twitter would melt down which is always the goal of the oscars i think at this point (laughs) um i would yeah i would welcome that i mean gaga's great and i love that song but like she's already won so let's let's bring in a new pop diva i sort of feel like it's going to be between those two Mm -hmm. you have movies like RRR and I love the White Noise song and you know there and the Turning Red song is great too but Billie Eilish has also already won. It just feels like this is going to be a big star matchup for big movies, um, as it should be. I feel like I have to say to stay true to myself that Lila Crocodile still in the hunt, but they did <laughs> submit one of the worst songs I think on the soundtrack, not the like great like song and dance numbers. So I'm not keeping my hopes up too high. If it's on the short list, I'll be thrilled. 
But I'm going to put my weight behind someone else, I think, unfortunately. <laughs> Katie, please tell me it's a song that Harvey R. Bredem sings. That means he'll perform at the Oscars. It's please, not. Please. This <laughs> is the thing. It's a Shawn Mendes song. And Shawn Mendes has a great voice. He's the crocodile. But it's just, it's like the slow. It's like Dos Oruguitas. Like they submitted the slow ballad instead of the big fun song that everyone liked. Um, although I don't think any of the songs from Lyle are quite as popular. So we don't talk about Bruno, but there's still time. Um, David, you mentioned RRR, and people should watch the Natu Natu clip, even if they yeah. haven't seen the whole movie, um, which I imagine would play better on the big screen. But um, I think if you watch that clip once, you just would beg the Oscar gods to nominate that song so that we can see that performance, because, man, it would be fun. And it feels like the kind of spoiler to a big star winning this, because it you is... You think it could win? I mean, do I th- would I predict it right now? No, over Lady Gaga Rihanna, <laughs> but... The movie has been gaining steam, and if enough people watch it, you know, you want to talk about a song that is so much a part of what makes the movie special. Like, yeah. this is literally that. And so I could see it pulling it off and it being a really surprising, rousing moment at the Oscars. I'm not, like, um, you know, It's hard out here for a anything. pimp for uh, 2023. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was a fun moment. I mean, how go. much with this category do you think like campaigning even matters or is it just about I can't ever tell if it's like the song has to be an earworm or like Beyonce was nominated last year and I was like well they're going to give it to Beyonce but obviously yeah. they didn't and so I feel like this category it's it, it can surprise us so hard. often yeah mm-hmm. because it doesn't work the same as other categories when her one for Judas and the Black Messiah yeah and I didn't even really remember the song and it was you know, it was a good song but it was just it felt really random to me because that movie didn't have the most heat in that category and she wasn't the biggest name in that category and it all was just sort of a strange coalescing. Well, there was a rule that year that if you perform on the roof of the new Academy Museum, you have to win. So. I think they all did, though. Yeah. I think Diane Warren performed up there. Did she like, really? Oh, you're right. Yeah. She did. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was I just her the, for some reason. When I went to the Academy Museum, I was like, ah, I'm on Diane Warren's roof. <laughs> <laughs> I love that that's how you remember that. Of course. I think one thing to keep in mind also is that the Academy, when it comes to best song, can be a little snooty about pop stuff. You know, and pop stars, and it's not serious music. And like, obviously, there is a long history of big pop stars winning the Oscar. um, But I think it's a little different when Gaga wins for something kind of musical, alt rock sort of thing for Star is Born um, than an out and out pop tune in the style of a Diane Warren, who has never won, you know, competitively. That's exactly the point. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's go to an Oscar history one, because these are fun. Um, and uh, so it's Ross writes, an interesting question. Having a sequel nominated for Best Picture is not unheard of. Godfather 2, the Lord of the Rings sequels. However, if Glass, Onion, and uh, Top, Gun oh, Top Gun Maverick sorry, um, get Best Picture nominations, would that be the first time a sequel was nominated for Best Picture without the first movie getting the nomination? It would be even crazier considering both would be in the same year. Um so, Katie, you, I think you have a quick answer to this already. Yeah, I think this why this came up. I don't know if it was talking to you guys or something else. So, Mad Max Fury Road, I think, is the big mm-hmm. uh, obvious correlation here. And then also Toy Story 3, weirdly, um, you know, from that period where Pixar movies just got nominated for Best Picture every single year. Um, but it didn't happen in the, you know, era of five Best Picture nominations, which for a reason, I think, for all this kind of like bias that we're talking about. Um, but two sequels in the same year, that would be, that'd be really something. And two very different kinds of sequels to two very different kinds of movies. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I feel like before everyone started writing about the Marvel kind of ruling the universe, it was just like, oh, sequels are just, that's all that's in theaters. 
Um, and now, just a decade or so later, we're like, yeah, we're ready for sequels to win that have, <laughs> that have that where their predecessor <laughs> were not nominated. And we've just uh, kind of adapted, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, you could also count Black Panther as a sequel if you wanted to, because it was after yeah. the events of Captain America Civil War. But, you know, depends on how crazy you want to go. And Avatar. And yeah, that's true. Well, I guess the first one was nominated, so it wouldn't be. Well, the first one the, was nominated, yeah. but yeah. Um, yeah. Do we think so? Do we think there's gonna be three sequels: Avatar, Top Gun, Maverick, and Glass Onion in the Best Picture lineup? A minimum of two. I mean, yeah. I think the strange thing about Glass Onion is, you know, you look at a Top Gun, Maverick, or a Mad Max Fury Road, and it, these are movies that so clearly artistically surpassed what came before them and they were just these like unbelievable phenomenons um with you know audiences and critics and and glass onion while certainly not a you know a letdown compared to the first one is not radically better (laughs) or different and so if it were to get in unlike the first one um and granted the categories expanded a little bit so and knives out was on the cusp so it could be in the exact same position as the other one was Mm. um but it is a strange case of a sequel outdoing the original despite not reinventing the wheel in a substantial way Tar is technically a sequel to Blue Jasmine because the character yeah. got her stuff together, <laughs> learned how to co- conduct, and and um, it, it created an entire fictional backstory for herself. It yeah, all, yeah. It all adds up. yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I, I think that like it's weird that I don't feel like icky about that prospect. You know, I think because those movies feel deserving-ish. You know, and uh, in the case of Top Gun, like thanks for helping to save the industry for yet another year. Um, and then Tom Cruise jumped out of a plane to say thanks continues to jump out of planes he just keeps can't stop him all right so last question is from frank uh he writes what relatively recent oscar win seems most unjustly forgotten and which one is very justly forgotten (laughs) i did research on this because i got nervous when i saw it and thought like (laughs) i wasn't gonna be able to come up with an answer on the spot so what i came up with for um justly forgotten the fact that George Clooney's Oscar is for Best Supporting Actor in Syriana, um, a movie that doesn't really exist anymore. And even when he won it, it was he was nominated for Best Director in the same year. And he was like, well, I guess I'm not winning director because you gave me this Oscar. Um, like, it was already kind of a throwaway Oscar the moment he accepted it. Um, not that I have anything against George Clooney having an Oscar, but it's a strange, it's a strange one for him to have. Um But then I was kind of in that same period of time and just looking back at the original screenplay winners run of the early 2000s um, and specifically Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, um, which is, you know, this was a period where like a great movie that was like too cool to get nominated for Best Picture would win original screenplay. You got Talk to Her, you got Lost in Translation, which was nominated but didn't win. Um, Gosford Park uh, wins this, Almost Famous wins this. Like that, that was like five years in a row. Just incredible winners in that one category. And then Crash wins in 2005 and breaks the spell a little bit. But um, I think we should talk about that more. Katie, I, I'm, I'm not a geopolitics expert, but I think Syriana is actually pretty good. Oh, yeah? Um, I haven't seen it since 2004, whenever it came out. I mean, you watch Syriana and you're like, this guy is definitely going to make a Dr. Doolittle movie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, such a weird career he's had. Um, but... Um, yeah, it's it's and Clooney's great in it. It's it's uh, it's an interesting movie. It's like you know, it's traffic, but about oil. Sure, um, maybe need to take it back. Uh, but I know that's that's a fair choice. I mean, I just out of personal grudge, I would say, and I think it is kind of justly forgotten is Birdman. Mm. Like, mm. I don't feel like that's a movie people talk about as like a new classic or anything. Um, and yet, the fact that one best picture is kind of bananas. 
Yeah, I mean, considering it was up against Boyhood and, you know, Selma and even Whiplash at that point, uh, that's that was a weird that was a weird year. Um, yeah. Unjustly Forgotten. I don't know. That's tough. I, I feel like that's so relative. But, um, you know, I feel like I've forgotten Shape of Water, even though I really liked it at the time. And I maybe I should revisit it. That's such a nice, like, for to have a movie like that that's like a nice fairy tale romance win Best Picture is such a strange thing to happen. And as we keep talking about, like, what is quote-unquote Best Picture worthy keeps changing very rapidly. Um, but it is, it's an interesting outlier in kind of the grand history of that category. Um, my justly forgotten is quite specific uh, in that <laughs> I think the King's Speech is definitely remembered as a Best Picture winner, but it winning Best Original Screenplay over another year. Inception, mm. which like is not my favorite movie, but it was such a screenplay movie and it's such a you know quoted movie. And the kids are all right is kind of insane to me. Um, it, and the it fighter, definitely, which is and uh, the fighter, pretty yeah, and the fighter too. I scrolled right past the fighter, <laughs> <laughs> and I I like the fighter, so that's that was not intentional. Um, yeah, it, to me, it's just a great example of a best picture winner sort of dragging along the screenplay win for absolutely no reason because especially the original screenplay category, like the category of Eternal Sunshine, like exactly what you were saying, Katie, it's so sad to me that that is the movie that you would highlight, even if it's a perfectly respectable movie. And even if the Academy, you know, eats up Colin Firth's performance and Tom Hooper's very respectable direction, uh, it's just, it's so not a screenplay movie. It's not a screenplay that's exciting or that, you know, is worth, in my opinion, highlighting. So I think justly forgotten, um, or now I'm, you know, have renewed rage about it. So I guess it's not <laughs> forgotten anymore, but it, for most people, I, I don't, I don't hear that very often. Um, and then, well, Rebecca, why don't you do one? I had a hard time picking these because I feel like the minute I would look at something, I'd be like, Oh, I haven't forgotten about that. Like the rage still sits <laughs> down in my stomach. So it's, um, I'm going to bring up Jared Leto in the Dallas Buyers Club because I, she did it. <laughs> I, I, um, you know, that, that that when I forgot about it, when I was looking at the list, and then I was like, oh, no, I did not forget about that because that was such a weird year and, and set him on a path to be, you know, nominated for other things. And uh, to me, that's just one that I don't even know which category I would put that in other than it doesn't sit well <laughs> with me even. <laughs> Who should have won? So Jared Leto beats Barkhad It was such a weird year that yeah. I, yeah, I, I mean... I would have given it to Michael Fassbender, maybe. I think Fassbender yeah. would have for Twelve Years a Slave would would have made me look over the list now and be like, okay, yeah. When mm-hmm. instead, I'm like, what happened here? So that's my pick for this. Doesn't sit well with me, which I know is not the exact name of this category, but that's how I'm answering I love it. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then in terms of my unjustly forgotten, I don't know if it's like forgotten. We don't forget. That's what we we don't don't forget. We're we're, we're bad at this. Um, But Mark Rylance is really extraordinary in Bridge of Spies. Also, I'm going by the recent rubric. So um, Mark Rylance is really extraordinary in Bridge of Spies. And that category seemed to be Sylvester Stallone's for a while. And it was such a... I think it's also such an exciting upset. And I remember, I forget who presented it, but they said Marker. And I was like, oh, Mark Ruffalo won for Spotlight. And then I was like, no, it was Mark Rylance. And it was very exciting. <laughs> um, so it was more like that moment. And he's such a phenomenal actor. And it was kind of, uh, it was nice to see them go with the 
the performance over the name. Much as I liked Sylvester Stallone and Creed, it was a, a rare triumph for something a little quieter, maybe. Going through all this, I'm just, I was thinking like, I would love it if Elisa Vikander won an Oscar someday. You know, yeah, she's just. she's deserving, but she's she's not won. She hasn't won for anything. Not even nominated. Nope, nope, it hasn't happened. Um, yeah, that's the I think a very justly forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> With, that's know. sort of the infamous one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's we so don't forget that, uh, that, we... that other people have forgotten that she won yeah. that, and I think she probably would like to forget it. Um, that movie is a big old problem. Speaking of Tom Hooper, actually. <laughs> Anne Hathaway. No. <laughs> Tom Hooper has oh, had Tom a Hooper crazy was. Oscar run. Like those three movies, like Les Mis, that and Danish Girl. Like that's pretty. And Judy Dench for Cats. Right, of course. Yeah, famously. <laughs> you guys are making me feel insane. Because Cats, <laughs> Cats came out right before the pandemic, and my memory of that whole period is so fuzzy. I'm like, Judy Dench got nominated for Cats? Is that possible? And you make me feel like I'm losing my mind. What's interesting about the Tom Hooper, Alicia Vikander combo wins is that neither of them have the careers right now of Oscar winners in any way, shape, or form for various reasons. That's, no, you know, no knock on her. She was great on Irma Vep, like, you know. Yeah, yeah but, I liked her in, uh, uh, what was that movie? The Justin Chan movie, Blue, Blue Bayou. Oh, Blue she Bayou, yeah, she's great in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, she, I mean, and Michael Fassbender are married to each other. Like, he hasn't made a movie in, like, four years. Like, he's really been gone. And he's in the um, Taika Waititi soccer comedy coming out in the spring from Searchlight, which, you know, may or may not be a big deal. Um, but yeah, maybe they just, like, want to live in wherever they live and have a baby and do nothing. I don't know. I feel like um, this question would be really fun for nominations because we all remember the wins, I think, whether they were mm. uh, terrible or wonderful. But I feel like there's so... When looking over these lists and just being, that person got nominated for this? No. Mm-hmm. you know, Those are the ones we erase from our memory pretty quick. Trumbo! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this was... Um, I was on a long drive and trying to kind of distract myself. And I was like, okay, name all of last year's Best Picture nominations. And I could not settle on whether Nightmare Alley had gotten nominated. I had to look it up when I got home because I just didn't remember. It did. Didn't it remember did. that. I was. Uh, I did a Q and A over the weekend with Jenny Slate for Marcel. At it was a part of the MoMA Contender series, and MoMA has the Del Toro exhibit going on at the Film Center now. And um, I walked down the escalator to go meet the publicist, and there were just all of these Nightmare Alley posters because it's part of the exhibit, I guess. And I was like, "Oh, right, that movie from last year yeah. <laughs> like, that I completely <laughs> forgot existed." It's like you time traveled back in late twenty twenty one. All of a sudden. One of the best final scenes attached to a not great movie. Yep. Okay, let's go from our mailbag to my conversation with Michael Barker and Tom Bernard, the co-presidents of Sony Pictures Classics. Um, As I said, we kind of look back over their 30-year history at the studio and then get really in the nitty-gritty of their Oscar campaign strategy, which we've talked about a lot, where they kind of like break late in the season. We talk about The Father and Anthony Hopkins and then about living with Bill Nye and maybe being able to repeat that same process. Um, A note that there were some technical difficulties and at one point, kind of halfway through, they wind up sitting in the same room together because they work together and we're next door. Um, So you might notice that difference in there, but it's a great conversation and worth listening to. So let's hear it. So I'm joined now by Tom Bernard and Michael Barker, the co-founders and co-presidents of Sony Pictures Classics, the distributors of many, many great films that turns 30 this year, right? Not 2023, 2022 is the big 30th anniversary? Yes. Happy anniversary to you both. Thanks for, for coming to talk to me. Thank you. Um, 
I want to talk about the big Blu-ray set and the anniversary and everything, but because we are uh, an awards-obsessed podcast, I wanted to you guys to flash back with me to an Oscars a couple years ago, and um, the moment that Joaquin Phoenix read Anthony Hopkins's name from the Best Actor envelope, which was kind of a, a thrilling surprise for all of us who watched the Oscars, kind of hoping for something new to happen that we don't expect. Um, where were you guys when that moment happened, and um, what do you remember feeling in that moment? Well, I uh, was pretty excited. I was at home watching on TV, and I had uh, placed a large bet on Anthony Hopkins because I felt very confident that he was going to win. And I was, you know, I would have been surprised if he hadn't, hmm. uh, you know, to be honest with you. It was something that, you know, we had uh, worked very hard at, and we've been in the business for a real long time. And, and so we felt just from our vibe and the people we felt we knew out there and and the quality of the work that Anthony Hopkins had put in that that would that would speak to the to the voters and uh it was uh it, it was wonderful you know and Anthony Hopkins was was home asleep uh and we we told him to be ready to get up in the morning and do his acceptance speech on Instagram which he did which was an incredible incredible speech that i think probably got uh, more eyeballs than than he would have if he'd been on the show because it was so late that's <laughs> true michael were you also at home i was uh, sitting at home with my two cats watching it and thinking how weird it was to be exhilarated and being there with two cats, you know. <laughs> so the thing that was interesting to me is so many of the pundits and journalists and critics I had talked to over the months did not believe he was going to win. And after he won, about 12, 15 at night until 1 a.m., all those pundits were calling, not all, but many of them were calling me on my phone, but I didn't take one of their calls. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no, it was a very um, exciting time in the sense that uh, that was a movie that prevailed through the pandemic. And it was not an easy film. It would have been easy for us to sell it to a streamer because we were in the pandemic. We just had real faith in that film and it turned out well you know we this is i think this would have we didn't go there this is the first time since 1985 uh we weren't at the oscars wow. i think michael 86 and so it was a very surreal experience watching it on tv because you know we hadn't watched it on tv since the early 80s and so just looking at unique that totally different experience was 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 very, I don't know, it was just unlike anything that I, you know, I'd experienced in, in the world of the Oscars. It was a weird Oscar ceremony in general, too. It wasn't just for you, for everyone. Yeah, it didn't seem like the Oscars, you know what I mean? It was like, we can go, we have so many moments that we can go through over the years. I mean, you know, our, our big moment was, I guess, when we first started Sony Classics and Hours End, you know, won uh, Best Actress, I think, in, in Screenplay. Another thing that was very gratifying about that event was that Chloe Zhao won director and picture. And two years before, we waged a campaign. We deserved, she, de she deserved to be nominated for best director. And it was just so difficult to crack. And so it was just so gratifying to see her win that. And we had been part 
of her trajectory and her career as it is this year. You know, when Tom and I see people like Luca Guadagnino being in the conversation again, and we, we released uh, Call Me By Your Name, or, or Damien Chazelle in the conversation again, and we had Whiplash, and then there's, there's Guillermo del Toro, and uh, a Kate Blanchett, we were with the Oscars with her, with um, Blue Jasmine. That is as gratifying to, as being in the room with your own nominee, you know? Really as gratifying? You don't want yeah, to have a is. little bit of... Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it there. is. We, we are really happy for them because uh, it, we were part of their history, you know? It's a lot more fun being in the room, but it's also satisfying that they're... Certainly on their way, but uh, there's nothing like that 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 experience in there. It's uh, just the tension in the air every year. Or some incredibly odd event happens, uh, you know, where they pull the wrong uh, name out of the hat. You know, Hopefully that or, never happens you know, again. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> well, Tom know. is right. When there's just an amazing thing that happens that you just don't expect. Obviously, the slap last year, but I remember the year when Elia Kazan got the, um, uh, the Lifetime, Lifetime Achievement, Achievement yeah. Award and Nick Nolte and Ed Harris sat on their, you know, hands. It, it was a moment to live in. It was a historical moment that was kind of unexpected. Yeah. I mean, I think The Father is, a, you know, not only a triumph for you guys, but really emblematic of the strategy that we talk about in this podcast this time of year, where this year it's living, being like, oh, wow, it didn't feel like anyone had seen living, but then all of a sudden Bill Nye is showing up everywhere. And it's this process where in January and February, people are discovering these movies. And in the case of Living, it premiered at Sundance over a year ago. I mean, how how long has that been your strategy through this? And why is it so successful? Well, I, I can say one thing. Michael can get into the, the, the nitty gritty of it, but our goal with when we buy a movie is we, we, we buy a movie because we think we know how to make it work in the marketplace, that it has certain attributes that I think are, are you know, good for the world and, and, and fit in our Sony Classics uh, library. And from the beginning of that movie, we felt that. And the fact is our whole goal is simply to get the Academy to watch the film. That is it. Everything is done to get everyone. If everyone watches each film, you're going to get a, a, you know you're going to get the best choices there. And it's just it's so hard now. There's ten thousand people you're pushing to get to the film. We have the site, uh, so that, you know the academy always throws a different set of rules that either get in the way or help of getting you to see the film. Now there's no more DVDs. That's mm. a big factor. There's a lot of people that still have to have their grandchildren work their computers. Yeah. But, you know, it's just, that's simply our goal. I think you need a lot of time with a movie like this. If you have faith in the movie, as we do with this film, it, this is a similar experience to the one we had with Capote, mm. which is that that was a film that had this star performance we showed it and used the film fall film festivals. We showed it as many places as possible. We floated it out there. Hey, pay attention to this director. Pay attention to the screenplay. Pay attention to different aspects of the film. We did that with Call Me By Your Name, and we did that with Whiplash as well. And you get results if you have the film that has the qualities that can do it. And if you can, as Tom says, if you can get enough academy members to focus and see the film yeah and so having it you know out there 
you know, opening in theaters late, is that part of the strategy of getting them to see it? Does that get attention more than if you open it in October and then had the screeners no, coming out? No, you know, every film is different. This film felt like a real Christmas picture. It has a great feeling at the end of it, like It's a Wonderful Life. It just makes sense to play it at Christmas. But yes, we could have opened in October. But the fact of the matter is we had so many opportunities. Every film festival wanted. It's very rare that Telluride will play a film that plays in Sundance. Mm -hmm. It's very rare that Toronto will do it. And it was in all of those festivals. And, and that makes a big difference. You guys have built this company on relationships with these filmmakers. And the award season push is part of that. But do you... What is that conversation like where you're like, okay, you're gonna, these are the events you're going to have to go to. This is how long this is going to take. This is why it's worth it. Are people resistant to that or do they, they understand kind of the, the, the campaign involved here? The filmmakers trust us uh, and it's been gratifying. They, they trust us in our plans and the campaign. And when we say this is a film that's slow and steady wins the race kind of thing with the public or maybe an award or two. Uh, the filmmakers, by and large, they believe that. They believe in the films. I, I can't think when we've had real pressure to open quickly. You know, the rationale and the reasoning makes sense to them. And also, they looked at what we have done before. I remember when Luca Guadagnino made it very clear to the other producers of Call Me By Your Name that he wanted us because he had observed what we did with independent films in the awards space and in the consumer space, films that were not easy to label. Were there any films he, any of particular of your films that he was inspired by there? I'm thinking of Almodovar, but I wonder. Well, he was inspired by by all the Almodovar films. Yeah, okay, that's what I thought. The release of all the Almodovar films. But Luca is quite a film maven, and he was inspired, you know, by so many things he saw that we had done, like with an education and Capote and and uh, Midnight in Paris and these kind of films, you know. They're not obvious big awards getters, you know, as far as nominations in other categories. I, I, I continue on Luca, but I can, I can give you one little odd Oscar thing that I think sums up a lot of uh, strategies for today. Please. Is, is there was, there was a, a cable channel called the Z Channel in Los Angeles back in the 80s. And one day, I think the Woody Allen movie, uh, Annie Hall, showed on it in January in that year won the Oscar. And it was the first time a, a large majority of people saw the film because they, they all had Z Channel. It was like the coolest thing to happen in LA. And so that sort of told the tale to us about the goal is get the Academy to see the film and the work will speak for itself. Do you ever get filmmakers or actors who get superstitious about all the awards talk? And sometimes people really don't like to talk about it in those terms, but it's obviously your job to do well, so. I you know what's interesting about that? There are a lot of actors and directors that don't want to campaign for awards, but they realize by doing all the press and the interviews, not only does it reach the consumers to get them to see the movies, but if for some reason the nominations become real, that also helps a wider audience base. And mm -hmm. that's what convinces those people who are very cautious about it. 
So let's talk about this year in particular, which the the story that you keep seeing is that the theatrical marketplace has just been a disaster, and specifically for smaller specialty films. And you guys are pretty committed to theatrical distribution, so I'm imagining you're going to push back on that idea that uh, audiences are have disappeared for for these smaller films. Well, I think it's not that they're disappearing. It's that they're very slow in coming. The audience for independent films is very slow in coming back to the movie theaters. And that process is just taking a long time. It's taking a long time for exhibitors to adapt and and change their ways, the marketing and so forth. It's just taking a long time. And I would suggest it's not just independent films. If you take away the horror genre, the family genre, and the uh, those tentpole franchise movies, I think all the other movies have a difficult time at this particular moment. But theatrical, in our view, will never go away because it is the distinct, the way you can make your title distinct in the marketplace as opposed to it being in part of an index on a platform. And that distinctive release, and social media is a godsend because it doesn't cost you what it cost you before. And that particular distinctive release can cause those movies to have such a long tail. And we feel over time, the audience is slowly going to come back. It's just a slow process. And even if at the end of the day, the box office is not as high as it used to be, we still have made those titles instinctive and memorable enough in the marketplace for people to view it in another way. Mm-hmm. And, and so the pictures have a long history. And to be honest with you, even before the pandemic, we've been here 30 years. And one of the keys to our being here 30 years is that we view these films as having a long tail. And if you look at these films we released early in our time, it's Sony Pictures Classics, like Run, Lola, Run, like Crumb, like Orlando, City of Lost Children. In some cases, they're even doing better on the platforms and on these these uh, uh, television and so forth than they did years ago. And these films have more than cult status, and they have a long tail. So we're playing not only trying to get as my, many people as possible in the theaters at the beginning, but we're playing we're playing this this strategy of imprinting on the public's mind the title and what it is so they can visit it and if they love it they revisit it again and again i have to tell you during the pandemic tom and i received a call from the heads of sony home entertainment and at that moment in the pandemic call me by your name was the movie that was garnering the most eyeballs and the most revenue of any film in the Sony Pictures Library. Uh, That is incredible. That's incredible. I I can imagine an Italian vacation in the pandemic. Uh, I can can see why that'd be something that you would put on. There's always a a moment in in the year where they say the business is over. Uh, And really, the issues going on right now, it's, it's... Disruption, I think, is a key word. I met this guy who was a professor at university or at UCLA who's majors, he teaches disruption. And right now, what 
is going on is there's disruption in the industry because the, the world, and especially after COVID, the world has finally come into the internet in a way that all ages can work it. You know, my 93-year-old mother can text me. Uh, I think a lot of people who you know, wanted to interact with their families who were old learned, learned how to work the computer. And they also learned that whatever they wanted showed up on their computer. They didn't mm -hmm. go look for it. Uh, they didn't have to do anything. They, the, the computer information found you. And so the issue is right now that the theaters are sort of like like my mother and, uh, you know, really need to be educated on how to organize their data and reach their customers because these independent theaters don't do that. And so you don't know what's playing, weren't because the newspaper's gone. Mm -hmm. You don't see the review every Friday. The movie clock isn't there. And if you're an older person, you know, rotten tomatoes may not be your favorite dish or, um, you know, you don't really know. It just randomly comes to you sometimes if you're watching TV or you might see a TV spot or uh, your neighbor says something or you just say, you know what, I don't know what's playing in the theater. Streaming is just enough. And so our goal has been to try and get the theaters back into the future. And uh, Angelica Theaters, we work with very carefully and we're now partnering with them with our social media and, and with trying to collect uh, the data on their customers and have a customer base where, you know, in the old days, you got a calendar in the mail. That was like the really old days. And you put it on the refrigerator and they knew you went to the movies at that theater. And so now we need to customize it. So if you like Pedro Almodovar or uh, we've got a movie that uh, maybe is, is politically relevant in some way or, or it's got an actor that's very famous, we need to know who likes those people and uh, we'll be able to, uh, we'll be able to reach them. And on Tuesday they get an email and on, they say, geez, we got to get a seat and reserve it. So Wednesday or, or Tuesday or Wednesday, they buy a ticket. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the main things is to get the theaters to move into the, the business of every other business, which reaches you on the internet for everything from a concert to a car, to a restaurant, to clothing. And then the, the second thing is, to need to motivate people to go back to the movies. So what did we do back in, I guess it was April? We had a, we opened a movie and said, okay, theater, this is what we're gonna do with you. We're gonna do two for one on this movie, but it's not gonna say two for one. It's gonna say, bring a friend back to the movies for free. We did that with Angelica. With the Duke, and that was successful. And, and we were the high, you know, we we're the highest gross in the complex. We did it in all their theaters around the country. They actually, outgrows the landmark theater chain with, with, you know, half the theaters with getting yeah. older people to put into their conversation, hey, we should go back to the movies. Let me call my friend. And so it's creating a motivation to go back. It's it's having Senior Tuesday. It's, it's you know, what you see now is a lot of the Q&As are happening on the weekends and you see this odd phenomenon where the biggest gross is Friday instead of Saturday because they've also had some event on Thursday and folded the numbers into the Friday number. So it's, it's, and it's, but they're not all on the same page and, and the chains, they're going after a different group of people. They're going after the younger audience, which is internet savvy. And, and so if you have a Spider-Man or, or Dr. Strange or, or, you know, uh, Black Panther, they, the fact is, these guys on the studio level now are, are using the internet. You don't see the same amount of TV spots 
for a lot of movies that are doing incredible amounts of business, but you certainly get a lot of information in all the other places that you look. And so it's, it's a real disruption in changing how the business works. It's, it's the theaters, you know, the studios are not that, well, the studios are still pumping out the dollars, but in the specialized business, it's, it's not that, that business. And the theaters need to work closely and combine their efforts. If I'm going to send the studio or the theater uh, $5,000 to do co-op advertising with me, I want to talk to them about how they're going to spend it now. And, oh, interesting. Uh, in, in a way that you wouldn't have 10 years ago, maybe. That's right. We were just giving it to them and, you know, they would have put it in all their, you know, calendar and all the usual things. But they're at a loss right now what to do. Well, what it sounds like you're kind of talking about like what the Netflix algorithm does. Being like, well, you liked this thing. Maybe you would like this one. But on a much more specialty kind of human level. But do you, do you feel like you're kind of learning from that algorithmic recommendation and trying to apply it? Well, forget, forget their algorithm. If you rent these three movies, here's three more movies we're going to send you in the mail on a DVD. I mean, that mm-hmm. was way back. And those yeah. guys, and, and what that did is that, that replaced the critics because back then the critics really were about the movies. It wasn't about their interpretation. It was how they saw the movie and what it was about. And, and you know, was a was a way you could gauge how you might like the film. Whereas this time you find critics that maybe have likes that you like that are very inter, inter, we're personal in terms of how they interpret the film rather than something where a guy like Vincent Canby, who was a New York Times critic years ago, could hate a movie and you would read that review and go, boy, I'm going to like that. <laughs> you, 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 don't, you don't see that anymore. And so. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about the box set and the anniversary that you guys have. And honestly, kind of on a broader topic of like what a Sony Pictures Classics movie is, because the range in this box set is really immense. Um, and I don't know what the process was for choosing because you're choosing, you know, 30 years worth of movies for one box. But was the, was the hope with this box set to say here is the absolute range of what we can do and, and what our history says? I don't know if those 11 titles show the complete range. As you said, what was what we couldn't get over is we had a, almost 500 titles when this was brought up and home entertainment wanted to do this. And we wanted to mention titles that have been so successful over the years, even if some of them weren't so successful when they first came out. Mm-hmm. City of Lost Children is so much more successful now than when it came out. Then you have movies that were successful then, like Orlando and Run Lola Run, but, but their lives are richer than than you can imagine as far as as far as popularity and they we wanted to show the range of that from slc punk to crouching tiger hidden dragon and um it was really at home entertainment chose those titles and uh, yeah it was because they looked at the the fan base of each of those films and they there's a wide range of people a wide range of demographics and and to see those movies transferred to this HD is so impressive, technically. You look at a movie like SLC Punk, which is an oddball film. That movie had a resurgence like six years after it, you know, disappeared. And it did, you know, mildly okay. But it's now like, you know, became a new cult film of a new generation that was sort of the, they wanted to emulate the, you know, the punk lifestyle of the, of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, uh you know, and we feel that the movies all have something to say, and 
very seldom do they just disappear. There might be one or two that just, you know, it was like that just didn't work. We saw it wrong. But, you know, I, I can't say that there's a movie in the library that we're not proud of or happy to have. Of course, there's some that have been disappointments in the marketplace, but we're proud of all of them, you know. I mean, I, we really feel for the, those gentlemen who made the climb because that was a victim of the pandemic, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. It was supposed to originally open the week after all the offices shut down. We, we had this movie called Denise Calls Up. It was about first time cell phones became like in the culture, you know, to, to look back on it. It's, it's, it's pretty entertaining and funny, but it just you know, it didn't quite connect. You know, the climb is interesting, though, because uh, Kyle Marv is now directing that big uh, 80 for Brady movie. So he, oh, yeah. his, his profile keeps rising despite the pandemic. So Yeah, absolutely. And then we opened it a year later. So it definitely always had its fans. And that will grow, too. I was, I was just on the phone with uh, one of the producers of the climb yesterday. And we were talking about once the, the, the ghosts of the pandemic disappeared and maybe try and open it again. Yeah, because it, it was it was that good a film, and I mean, it opened like the week of March thirteenth when everything closed. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, such a black hole, really. Um, I mean, maybe a question to end on because you guys have talked about these relationships that you build and maintain over decades, and you know, other than releasing their movies, like what does that look like in the years between movies are out? What does it mean to you guys to keep those relationships intact, to keep building them, and to and to give your filmmakers support? even when they're not making a movie, so that they keep coming back to work with you? I think it's a relationship that has grown organically through the process of releasing their film. And they could come back to us a year later. They could call us 10 years later. Um, and we hope, we like to think it was always a great experience for them to go through this process. We, when we release a film, Michael and I are very involved from beginning to end, so... Michael is on his way to Palm Springs to be with the people from Living. You know, we're uh, at the, the 92nd Street Y when, uh, you know, Turn Every Page. It's, it, no, no, I was up there with, uh, with Living. Michael was up there with Turn Every Page. So we're there with them through this. If we say, hey, we're go- we want you guys to do this stuff and it's going to really, you know, be a bit taxing. Well, we're going to be there with you. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in the festivals with them. We're, we're there, you know, working them through. The, the red carpet and with the publicist. It's not like we've got a machine where, you know, it's old school. It's, it's I mean, um, Sal Zance is a, was a good friend of ours who was a producer, Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus and many movies. And he was there at all times with the people that made that movie from the distribution to the events. And that, that I think, puts a bond together because we both got through that experience. So it's it's just there. It's like you having a good friend, you having a, Somebody you don't see for, you know, two or three years. You could still connect on the moments of your friendship in the past. Last night I went to see Straight Line Crazy with Ray Fikes on his stage. And saw him afterwards and he was so happy to see me because we have been in the trenches with him on several of the films he's directed, several of the films he's acted in with various levels of success. And and it is, it's a bonding exercise it really is we take we take the movies personally you know it's something when we buy one we we want it to work it's part of our life 
That does it for today's episode. We'll be back next week with an interview episode, a special from one Julie Miller, our colleague. And then we won't have a roundtable conversation. We're taking a little bit of a break for the holidays. Um, But we'll be back in the new year with so many award shows and everything else to cover. Um, So please, we hope you also get some restful time away in the meantime. Uh, You can find us on Twitter, HWD. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaz. And David. David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca. Rebecca M. Ford. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of what it's like to read listener emails goes to David Canfield. Very sacred experience. 